Parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Welcome to Freedom Through Faith. Prepare to be blessed as pastor and teacher Robert Thibodeau leads us into the anointed study of the Word of God, teaching and empowering you how to impact your world with the gospel of Jesus Christ, teaching you how to receive the blessings and provisions of God and how to walk through this life with Freedom Through Faith. And now, here's Pastor Robert Thibodeau. We now rejoin today's message already in progress. Now we're getting out of the world a little bit here, amen? This is going past the the natural course of things. In the heavens, speaks of course of Christ's ascension. Having ascended into heaven, he was seated, right, with the Father. That's chapter 1, verse 3. In chapter 4, verse 14, it says, He passed through the heavens, and so on and so forth. Amen. Glory to God. Man, oh man, where does time go? So Jesus Christ, having accomplished his work, finished it and passed through the heavens, the stellar heavens, the, the atmospheric heavens, entered into God's heaven, and then sat down on God's throne. That's our high priest. And the emphasis in the book of Hebrews is on the fact that Christ is at the right hand of God. And I think the purpose of it is to assure those who were deprived of temple services in Jerusalem because they converted to Christianity, they've been excommunicated out of the temple, they didn't have to worry about it. Because the earth and everything here is just a shadowy realm. Because they had a real high priest in the real holy of holies, in the real heaven of God, who is there for them ministering and interceding for them. So the, the, the crowning argument for the superior priesthood of Jesus Christ and his exaltation to heaven is to sit in the presence of the Father. Amen. That's the glorious sum of everything the Bible tells us that we just read that shows us he is indeed a superior priest for us. And that leads us now to the second point of this chapter. Not only is he superior because of his seat, but because of his sanctuary. You see, since he's a superior priest who's ascended to heaven, he ministers in a superior sanctuary. He doesn't fool around in a skin tent like the tabernacle, nor does he minister in a physical building on earth. Those temples have all crumbled long ago. His temple is in heaven. He ministers in the real Holy of Holies. I want you to kind of 
screw your brain on here for a few minutes because we're going to dig into these next few verses and I think you'll find it exciting and see what God wants you to see through this. Verse 2, a minister of the sanctuary. What sanctuary? It says, even of the true tabernacle which the Lord pitched and not man. Ah, now, Jesus isn't a priest in this earthly tabernacle or the early temple. He's a priest in the true one, which the Lord pitched, not man. God's got his own holy of holies. He functions, Jesus functions as a high priest, not in the earthly temple, but in the heavenly dwelling place of God, because that's where he sits. An interesting note comes to my mind here in Acts chapter 7. Uh, I think it's down about maybe verse 55 or so. We have an occasion. Some people have argued about the finished work of Christ because Acts 7.55. I love this. You know, the, this is talking about Stephen who preached and got stoned for it. They heard the message that he gave and it must have, I mean, he must have been a powerful preacher. You know, it's a wonder to me sometimes that God lets some of his most powerful preachers only live a short time. All we know about Stephen was really this one sermon. How would you like to be called into the ministry and the very first time you preach, they want to kill you? Amen. That's how powerful his sermon was. And it says, when they heard these things, they were cut to their heart and they gnashed on him with their teeth. In other words, he got a reaction. Glory to God. Don't you like this? Listen to the next verse. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, looked up steadfastly into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus sitting. No, he wasn't sitting. It says Jesus standing on the right hand of God. Now his redemptive work is finished. As far as redemption is concerned, he is seated. But every time one of his own people gets into trouble, he stands up. Why? Because he has something to do. His power and his energy is activated in those moments in behalf of his own people. That's his mediator's work. For he's seated in his redemptive work, but he's active as our mediator. What a tremendous promise this is. you got to see this. Back in Hebrews 8, it says he's a minister. A minister, that comes from a combination of two Greek words which have to do with, well, one word means belonging to the people and the other means to work. So in other words, he's one who works for the sake of the people. We get our word waiter from the same root words. Okay, A waiter is one who, who ministers to the people in the restaurant or whatever. Okay, Jesus is one who ministers for us in heaven for our sake. Amen. You know what? I'm constantly, I'm reminded of this truth all the time. And yet it's, it's really so hard to grasp the fact that Jesus Christ, in all of his glory, in all of his magnitude, in all of his exaltation in heaven, is still preoccupied with ministering to me. Amen. He's always serving. He condescends even in his glorious nature now on the throne of God. He stands up to minister and intercede in my behalf. 
whenever I have a need. He never received his majesty as something to be selfishly enjoyed. It's in Christ that majesty and service are perfectly met, melted together. Amen? And notice that word sanctuary. It's just a simple word. It's based on the word hogios, and hokinanus is the form. It simply means the holies. A minister of the holies, which be a combination of the holy place and the holy of holies. What does that mean? It's heaven itself. Did you know that heaven itself is God's holy place, God's holy of holies? In Hebrews chapter 9, verse 24, it says, For Christ has not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but in heaven. There heaven is synonymous with the true holy places. So God's holy place is heaven. And if you want another cross-reference, go to Psalms 102, verse 19, which calls heaven God's sanctuary. And so it is that God has a holy place in heaven, and that's where Jesus ministers. And notice he calls it the true tabernacle. That word true is not used here as an opposite sense from false. He's not saying the true tabernacle as opposed to the false tabernacle. No. He's using this word true in contrast with something that is shadowy or unreal. The difference between a typical shadowy temporary thing and one that is true. The true one is abiding, solid, and real. In chapter 9, it really details this. Let me just go into a little bit of chapter 9. Then verily, the first covenant also had ordinances of divine service and an earthly sanctuary. The first covenant had an earthly sanctuary. For there was a tabernacle made, the first in which the lampstand and the showbread, and it goes on down to talk about that, and the veil, and then the holy place, and the golden censer, the Ark of the Covenant, and uh, in verse 4, keeps going all the way down. In verse 9 it says, there was a, or This was a figure for the time then present. That's all it was. It was only a figure in which were offered gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service, what? Perfect as pertaining to the conscience, which stood only in food and drink and washings and carnal ordinances imposed on them till the time of reformation or the regeneration. It wasn't until Jesus came and began to minister in the true tabernacle. Because in verse 11 it says, But Christ, becoming a high priest of good things to come, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say not of this building, and, and so forth. Christ ministers in the heavenly sanctuary, the holy of holies, where God is. He doesn't minister in a shadowy temple on earth. Many people think that he ministers in the local church. No, he doesn't. He's not... Jesus does not occupy the church building. Amen? Let me give you an illustration that will help you understand this. The Greek philosophers had an interesting and very dominating thought. If you studied uh, Greek philosophy or anything, I, I studied in college... Uh, both his bachelor's degree and his master's degree, we had classes on this. But the Greeks always thought in two terms of 
in terms of two worlds. One was a real world, one was unreal. You may have studied about Plato. You may have studied a little bit about the you know, Aristotle, polemic, and some of these other things that have to do with philosophy in those days. And You may have run across this kind of a dual concept, especially because that was the basic doctrine of Plato. But Plato always said somewhere there was a real, and that what we saw was the unreal. The world of space and time was a world of shadows. It was a world of copies, pale copies at best. A world of unreal reflections. But somewhere, there was a real world. And he talks about the universal horse, for example. That all other horses are just a shadow somewhere in some place of the true horse. Or the true chair is somewhere. Everything else is only a shadow chair. That was Greek philosophy. This is only a shadow world that we live in. Somewhere there is a real world. And in that real world, there's the universal horse and the universal chair, the universal tree or whatever. That was Plato's attempt at explaining these things. And I think it can relate here. Because the writer of Hebrews is saying very much the same thing. The writer of Hebrews is not a Greek philosopher. But he's speaking about the revelation of God. And in a very, a very real sense, the Greeks weren't too far off. There is a real world. Where we are at now is not the real world. In terms of God's revelation of the Old Covenant, it was all just shadows and types and pictures and reflections, all from the pattern which is in heaven. The earthly temple, the earthly tabernacle, is a place that was only a copy of, of the real temple of God. Earthly worship is only a remote reflection of real worship of what that will be when we get to heaven. The earthly priesthood is only an inadequate shadow of the real priesthood. In fact, if you go back to Exodus chapter 25, verse 40, and it'll be quoted you as a matter of fact in Hebrews in verse 5 in a minute, but you'll find that when Moses received the instructions about how to build the tabernacle and all of its furnishings, God said to him, Look that you make them after their pattern which was shown to you in the mountain. For the pattern was heavenly. All the earthly things are only pictures of the pattern. So Jesus is superior to Aaron, number one, because he's seated. And number two, because he serves in the real sanctuary, a superior sanctuary, not pitched by men, but pitched by God himself. And he serves in the real sanctuary. Amen. Now in verse 3, wow. In verse 3, he begins to pursue his argument from the general to the particular. Let's say that this, that, because there are some great things here. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. So the question can come up at this point. Well, if he's finished his work and he's up there in heaven, what's he got to do? Well, every high, every high priest is appointed to be a minister, right? If he's a legitimate high priest, that means he'll be busy. He'll be ministering in the area of gifts and sacrifices. Wherefore, so it is a necessity that this man must have somewhat also to offer. If it's a standard commodity for priests to do it, then Jesus will be doing it, because he's the perfect priest. You see, the Jew at this point would say, 
Well, that's no priest at all. You don't have any priest at all. He may he may just be up there sitting around, but he hasn't got anything to do. There's no ministry there. So therefore, he's not a true high priest. And so the writer simply says this. Every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. So it's necessary that this man does as well. So did Jesus offer sacrifices? Yes, he did. He offered the sacrifice of himself. But notice the term gifts. Now in chapter 5, verse 1, a statement there that every high priest taken from among, among men is ordained for men in things to God that he may offer gifts and sacrifices. And the gifts idea is simply divides sacrifices into the two kinds that are in Scripture. Remember, there are two different kinds of sacrifice. The first kind of sacrifice was the meal offering, right? In the meal offering, there was no bloodshed. You merely brought the meal offering as it was. And the other kind of sacrifice was the blood sacrifice. And that's the distinction we're seeing here. He's simply saying, every priest is involved in both kinds of offerings. Bloodless meal offerings, gifts, and blood offerings, sacrifices for sin. So Jesus, if he's the true high priest, will also be doing both of these things. Ah, well, I understand that, Brother Bob. He did the first, the sacrifice of blood, when he offered his own blood on the mercy seat, when he offered himself as a sacrifice. But I don't understand about the gifts. Is he still ministering to the area of gifts? If so, what are they? All right, let's take a moment and explain it to you. In the Old Testament, all of the meal offerings had to do with thanksgiving and dedication. When a man brought a meal offering, he was thanking God and dedicating his life to God. It was an act of dedication, not an atonement for sin. It was a personal dedication, a personal commitment to God. And what he's doing is praising God and thanking God and acknowledging God in his life and committing himself to live for God. That's what those sacrifices meant. And so we see Jesus continuing to do this for us. For none of us, watch this here, listen to me now, None of us can praise God or can dedicate ourselves to God or can truly worship God or truly thank God unless we do it through Jesus Christ. We always come to God by Him, the Scripture says, right? So in a sense, Christ continues, even now, to minister gifts to God. Our gifts, glory to God. As we bring the thanks and the praise and the worship of our hearts and dedication of our lives to praise God with, Christ takes those gifts, the gifts of our thanks, our praise and our worship and our dedication, and offers them to God. So he still ministers in the area of gifts. He no longer ministers in the area of sacrifices. He only needed to do that, what? One time. And so he says, in effect, in verse 3, that he is a legitimate high priest who continues to minister. Amen? In verse 4, he goes on to talk about the fact that he's a heavenly priest. It says, for if he were on earth, he would not be a priest. Now, why wouldn't Christ be a priest if he was on earth? If he'd been designed to be an earthly priest? What's the one thing that would have withheld him from the priesthood? 
he's from the wrong tribe, wasn't he? He could not qualify to be an earthly priest because he was not born of Levi. He wasn't part of the Levitical priesthood. So therefore, he'd be disqualified. So he simply says, and Jews have said at this point in their mind, well, if he's a priest, what's he doing up there? Why does he come down here when we need him? Well, he can't be on earth ministering, seeing that there are priests that offer gifts according to the law. In other words, God has set a certain ceremonial law in motion. That priesthood still exists on earth. God does not need other priests to do what the priesthood does. It's interesting to note that God never confuses substance with shadow. He never mixes the two. So Jesus cannot be an earthly priest for the very fact that he's from the wrong tribe. He has to minister somewhere else. And the point is, he does minister somewhere else, in a better place, which makes his priesthood a better priesthood. And verse 5 goes on to talk about this. Who serve, these priests who serve as an example and shadow of heavenly things. Those priests in verse 4 who offer gifts on this earth, according to the law, are examples in a shadow of heavenly things. As Moses was admonished by God when he was about to make the tabernacle, this is Exodus 25 again, it says, says he, that you make all things according to the pattern shown to you in the mountain. In other words, even Moses must have known that on this earth, that's not the real thing. It's just a shadow, a type and shadow of the pattern he saw in heaven. So Christ must be a priest of a superior sanctuary. He cannot be one in the earthly priesthood because he's the wrong tribe. There doesn't need to be confusion here because there are already earthly priests doing what they've been set up to do. But they are only examples of the shadow of the heavenly priesthood and the heavenly temple, the heavenly holy place, because that's first. Amen. The word example means a sketch, an outline, or a copy. You could also translate it as figure in chapter 9, verse 24. This was only a copy of the real sanctuary. Amen? The second word is shadow, skia. It says exactly what it means. It's a shadow or a silhouette. Do you know that a shadow has no independent substance or any independent existence? You can't prove it's there. It has no existence at all. It exists only as proof of the fact there's a reality somewhere else, right? When you see a shadow, you can look around and say, something must be making the shadow. The shadow has no independent existence at all. It cannot exist without the real. And that's true of the Aaronic priesthood. It has no independent existence in and of itself. It's merely a shadow of the real, which is heavenly. And so, simply stated, Jesus is a better high priest because he has a superior sanctuary, one in heaven, which is real. The real, not a copy. And he's seated, which no priest ever, ever thought of doing, for his work was never done. Then he moves to verse 6 and makes a transition to the final point. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry, by how much also he's the mediator of a better covenant which was established upon better promises. Okay, what's he saying here? Let's just take the first part. He's obtained a more excellent ministry. That's a tremendous statement. That, 
pretty well sums it all up. He's a better priest all the way down the line. And he's seated. He's in the true sanctuary in heaven. Therefore, he's obtained a more excellent ministry than any of the priests could ever hope to accomplish. This is telling the Jew, why would you want to fool around in the shadows when you could come to the reality? You see? He's saying to the reader, why do you want to just dawdle away in these things that are only copies when you can come to the truth in Jesus Christ and you can have a priest who's in the holy of holies in heaven above, not just in a shadow down here. That's a tremendous message to the Jews as well as to us. Amen. In verse 6 he says, making his transition complete, he is also the mediator of a better covenant, which is established on better promises. So if he's superior in a superior sanctuary, then his covenant is also superior. And that's what I want you to see today. He is superior because of his seat, because of his sanctuary, and because of his superior covenant. And you see in verses, really from verse 6 all the way through verse 13 here in Hebrews, Hebrews 8, this is primarily quoting from Jeremiah. We don't have to study it in great detail. We'll just look at it. He's the mediator of a better covenant, which is established on better promises. Just that concept of the word mediator. We know the Apostle Paul said to Timothy that we have one mediator between God and man. The man, Jesus Christ. And the word used here for mediator is misites, from misos, which means to be in the middle. The mediator is the one in the middle, standing in the middle between two others, and brings them together. In Galatians 3.19, Paul uses that word misites to speak about Moses. It says Moses is the misites of the old covenant. He's the one who brought God and man together under the old covenant system. But here, the writer says, Jesus is the perfect Mesites, the perfect mediator of a better covenant. All that Moses couldn't do because of human weakness, Jesus does. Amen? Jesus brings God and men together perfectly, providing access where the old priesthood could never do that. This covenant is far, far better because he is better. Amen? And it's also better if you look at the end of verse 6, because it's established on better what? Promises. Now all covenants are made on the basis of promises. God would promise to do something. That's what a covenant is. And what the promises are of the better covenant are clearly outlined from verses 8 to 12. Because it's a direct quote from Jeremiah 31.31. We're going to look at it. It's based on better promises. Look at verse 7. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then there'd be no place sought for the second. And at that point, if I was an unbelieving Jew, I would say, that's right. So why are you giving us all this baloney about a second one? What are you, why are you doing this? Are you saying the first one's got faults and problems? What gives you the right to say that? What gives you the right to tell me that there needs to be another covenant? What gives you the right to say the first one had a lot of faults and there's another one coming along? Who says so? So the writer of the book of Hebrews answers those questions and says, God, through Jeremiah, your own prophet, says so. Zap! <laughs> Amen. Knock them flat on their face with that one. 
You have just heard a message of encouragement from anointed pastor and teacher Robert Thibodeau with Freedom Through Faith Ministries in Baltimore, Maryland. For more information on the Freedom Through Faith Ministries or to invite Pastor Thibodeau to your church, please visit our website, www.ftfm.org. That's FTFM for Freedom Through Faith Ministries. Again, that's ftfm.org. Until next time, when we gather together around the Word of God, be blessed. And remember, we serve an awesome God.